1 Kings 10 brings us to a strange juxtaposition. Perhaps it, more than any other chapter, allows us to see Solomon somewhat accurately. In the chapter, we, we see him in the midst of his glory, and we see that his heart is also filled with greed. Indeed, God is faithful to keep his promises to Solomon, but, but even here, we can see that Solomon is flirting with unfaithfulness. Indeed, he is the king who is full of wisdom, and yet he plays the part of the fool. Uh, we've said a few times that uh, perhaps it's not the best moniker to call him Solomon the Wise, but better to call him Solomon the Gray. Because despite his wisdom, he often disobeys the Lord. This chapter uh, is a little bit like Neapolitan ice cream or cake, which I don't know if anybody actually likes. But at any rate, it's three different flavors or three different layers, right? I think, what, is it strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla, right? Okay, all right, great. We used to just call it Superman ice cream back in the day. Uh, but anyhow, you've got three different layers. And so what, what we want to do as we work through the text is we want to look at this top layer, uh, which deals with God's providence and his plan, how he brings about all his purposes in time and space and history. That's just one layer. We're going to spend the least amount of time there, though. Uh, the next thing we want to consider is how Solomon has broken his promises, how he is uh, both wealthy and, and greedy. We want to recognize how he has broken his promises and consider those things from the text. And then lastly, we, we want to consider Solomon's wisdom and his glory, how God has kept all of his promises to Solomon. My hope is, is that we'll, we'll see all three of these layers and we'll, we'll taste them, you know, from, from the bottom up, get the, the full flavor of the passage. And the main idea this morning, what I, what I think we should walk away from the text with is this, uh, seek the wise king. We want to seek the wise and faithful king who brings blessing to all nations. Your outline is there before you. Uh, let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we come to you hungry and thirsty for righteousness this morning. We come hungry for another part of your word, knowing that we, we shall not live on bread alone. And so we pray that you would feed us from thy bounty once more this morning that you would strengthen our souls, that you would cause us to delight in Christ, who was crucified for sin, and raised for the justification of his people. Pray that you would help us to recognize and repent of sin in ourselves. Pray that you would grant to us humility, that we might hear you speak. Meet us now. We have gathered to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now again, in layers here, one of the, the primary things we're supposed to see in chapter 10 is we're supposed to come to it, and we are supposed to be awed at Solomon's wealth. We're supposed to sort of say, whoa, that is incredible. But at the same time, we need to remember that those who are reading these words are reading them with post-exilic eyes. The original audience has seen the curse of God fall on the kingdom. They've seen this glorious temple that has just been erected become a heap of ruins because they abandoned the Lord their God as their forefathers. And so as they read of Solomon's glory and the height of the kingdom, they're also going to do so with groaning. Ah, it was so good. Why? Why did we depart from the king? And so we will start with where the people would groan over Solomon's apparent and subtle folly, starting with verse 14. Remember, we've been tracing these seeds of worldliness throughout uh, since chapter 3, and we're going to continue doing that this morning. Uh, Pay special attention to how often you hear the word gold. Verse 14. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, which came from the explorers and from the business of merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold, three minas of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top on each side. The seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrest, while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Haram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Drop down to verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephla. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. And the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so, through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. I I mean, wow! Solomon has an incredible amount of wealth. It's as if uh, we 
hear the word gold so many times. I mean, it feels like a billion times the word gold is in that text, and it's to give us the feel for just how wealthy Solomon is. He is vastly wealthy. He is incredibly blessed. It's as if the author takes us on a tour and says, look at all of this stuff. He's got gold everywhere. He decorates his place with golden shields. He's got golden dinnerware on the table. It's going to beat your finest china. And we, we use paper plates in my house. He's using gold. He's got a great ivory throne, and it's overlaid with, you guessed it, gold. We're told there's not another throne like it anywhere. It's, it's unique. Indeed, he even has exotic animals imported. Right? They're not overlaid with gold, but, but they're there. I mean, how incredible would it be to have a peacock, right? Who doesn't want peacocks and apes rolling around? I mean, it would be fun to go on a tour of Solomon's palace and his kingdom. You know, here's everything. All my stuff is laid with gold. Here's the like, golden wallpaper. Here are my exotic animals. We are to be wowed at Solomon's wealth, and we are to recognize that God has been faithful to keep his promises to Solomon. This is a theme that we see over and over again in Scripture. It's the drum that the biblical authors beat. It's that God is always faithful. He always keeps his word. He always keeps his promises. And he has promised to Solomon, we heard it back in chapter 3, right after Solomon asked for a listening heart so that he might rule justly, God says to him in verse 12 of 1 Kings chapter 3, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning heart, mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. Solomon is a king who is unparalleled. Why? Because God keeps his promises. Because of God's faithfulness to Solomon. God keeps his word and he blesses Solomon. And because God keeps his word, we will see him punish Solomon's disobedience. That's coming in, in chapter 11. And it's a disobedience that we see primarily here, subtly here, in the gathering of excess wealth unto himself. Solomon, by the time we get to verse 8 of chapter 11, uh, we will learn had a great affinity for gold, Guns and girls. Wealth, weapons, and women, right? The king in Deuteronomy is told, don't gather to yourself many wives. Don't gather to yourself horses from Egypt. Don't gather to yourself excess gold and silver. I mean, Dan read it this morning. And what have we seen Solomon doing over and over again? We focused on his Egyptian tendencies last week as he imported horses from Egypt. He's got a port at the Red Sea, sending the people back into Egypt in opposition to God's command. But what are horses and chariots used for in the ancient world? Warfare. 
weaponry. He's amassing them to himself. Not only that, this wise king is arming his enemies. Did you notice that? Look at verse 29. It's talking about importing chariots and horses. And it's the very last line. So through the king's traders, they were exported, exported, heard it both ways, exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Well, the Hittites are among those people that Israel was supposed to destroy, right? So he's, he's arming them. And the kings of Syria become a consistent threat to the people of Israel. The wise king arms his enemies to the end of adding to his wealth. We learn in chapter 11 that he also has been multiplying to himself wives. Yet what's in our focus in this text is his greed for gold. Lots of it. Literally, tons and tons of it. And it's during the height of his glory. It really sort of turns on its head. I don't know if you've ever heard, I've heard people say to me before, don't criticize what God is blessing. Have you heard that? This, this passage, this text, Solomon's life sort of undoes that. Because God is blessing Solomon, but it's not because Solomon's doing everything right or is above criticism. He's blessing Solomon, and eventually he's going to discipline Solomon because Solomon has turned his heart away from the Lord slowly and towards other things, towards gold. He is greedy, greedy. I think a little bit, you know, we oftentimes, and we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, about how, well, how much gold is too much, right? Because the, the prohibition in Deuteronomy 17 is don't gather to yourself excess silver and gold. Well, you know, how, how do I know? Is, is 50 tons of gold, you know, that's good, but 51 tons, well, that's excess. How do I know, right? I think the reality is it's, it's a heart issue. It's not about how much treasure you have, but where your treasure is. Is wealth, riches, the stuff you have, sort of rightly ordered under Christ's lordship, or has it displaced him and begun ever so subtly to take hold of your heart? And listen, both rich and poor are susceptible to greed. Greed is famous for its guile. When we become consumed with thoughts of what we can get and what we have, and we become discontented with what we have, it is a sure sign that greed has wormed its way into our hearts and has began to eat away at our confidence in Christ as our sure and steady anchor, as our perfect provider. Think of greed a little bit like the ring in, in Lord of the Rings. I know, you're shocked, shocked, right? Uh, in Fellowship of the Ring, there's a, a wonderful scene in the movie when Bilbo says, I'm going to leave my ring to Frodo. He's going to give it to his nephew. But he forgets that it's in his pocket. So Gandalf asks him, he says, where's that ring? And he's like, oh, it's on the mantelpiece. And he says, no, no, it's here. Almost absentmindedly, it's in my pocket. And he takes it out, and he looks at it in his hand, very carefully and adoringly, and he strokes it. And he says to himself, why shouldn't I keep it? Why shouldn't I keep it? 
And this is what we do with our greed. We find our hearts beginning to stray away from the Lord. We take it out, we, we look at it, and we go, hey, you know, it's not really excessive, right? Got to have money to live, and, and I've got to pay my bills, and I've got to pay attention to, to my finances. And so instead of addressing the greed issue or confessing it, we say, ah, why shouldn't I keep it? And we, like Solomon, allow greed to grow up in our hearts next to our godliness. But friends, a house just like a Sorry, a heart, just like a house, divided against itself, cannot stand. Though godliness and greed can grow up in the same house, well, one will eventually displace the other. And we ought to be very careful with greed. Some of my favorite stories are those when animals attack stories, and they always start in the most, most ridiculous way, right? There's somebody who's like, you know, I, I first developed my love for extremely uh, dangerous creatures, you know, wild, bite your face off in your sleep creatures uh, when I was two. You know, my, my parents gave me a teddy bear, and I began to love bears, and, you know, bears are predators, and so I developed a great love for tigers, and now I own a lion, right? There's like a scene or something, him like walking along with their lion on their property, you know, petting it, or tigers is usually one of the popular ones. And they say, hey, my tigers, they sleep in my bed, and the whole thing, right? Uh, and I read a story of a guy who, one of these people, and he had a, a lion and a lioness, and he kept them for his breeding venture. And do you know how the story ends? The lion torn to pieces. That comes as a shock to absolutely no one. This is what lions do. They are apex predators. They are killers. It is foolishness to say, I can domesticate it. They'll live in my house. It'll be fine. It might be fine for a day, a week, maybe even a couple years. But eventually, given an opportunity, that apex predator is going to do what it does. It's going to kill. Friends, likewise, when we allow greed to exist in our hearts next to our godliness, it might be okay for a little while. But eventually, that lion of greed is going to turn on us and tear us apart. Why shouldn't I keep it? Because it will ensnare you. It will turn you away from your Lord. Friends, when we read about Solomon's heart here, we ought to immediately begin examining our hearts. Greed will bring discipline to Solomon's life. I mean, later he will write in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. I mean, Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, that greed 
can bring about destruction. This is what he says. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and greed. One is going to win out at the end of the day. One is going to dictate how you live your life. It's going to be your finances or Jesus. I could stop there, but Jesus actually brings up Solomon in that text. It's easy to miss. I'm going to keep reading from Matthew 6. He says, you cannot serve God and money, therefore, so because you can't serve God and money, hear what I have to say. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, by worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see what Jesus' point is here. Don't trust in mammon. Don't trust in riches. Don't worry about all these necessities of life primarily. Seek first, later it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is saying, trust me. And his argument here that brings Solomon into the picture is that those who trust God are not only better off than the flowers of the field. They're better off than Solomon, who had all the wealth the world could imagine. It is better to have next to nothing trusting in Christ than it is to have absolutely everything and to be trusting in wealth. Greed subtly seduces us into trusting itself rather than Christ. It really is an incredible thing. And it's foolish of us to think, I mean, first of all, I almost, greed's talked about a lot throughout the Bible, right? Commandment ten, number 10, like do not covet, don't be covetous, don't be greedy. But I've never heard anyone confess, I'm really struggling with greed. When was the last time you confessed a struggle with greed to anyone or even thought about it? Greed, it's really one of those things that it's growing up in us, but we're never guilty of it. But we can see it in other people really easy, right? So how do we address it? How do we cure greed? We've already said by putting it in its rightful place under the lordship of Christ. But also we need to recognize that 
the cure for greed uh, is not simply selling everything. Paul writes about greed in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me begin with verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction because the love of money is a, notice a, not the, a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And you can go down to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul's prescription for greed is not that we would make ourselves poor. He recognizes rich and poor both will struggle with greed. The antidote to greed is gratitude. You see that godliness with contentment is great gain. The rich ought not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, on the wealth and the security that wealth can provide for us here. Don't set their hope on riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If we are to conquer greed in ourselves, we ought to recognize that the provision for our life doesn't come from our pocketbook, but from King Jesus. He provides. Our hopes should be set on Him. We should give thanks for what we have and the rich among you should think about how we can use our riches for the good of others, being generous and ready to share. The one who is rich is to be rich in good works. And I think this is another area where us Christians, like somebody else is always guilty of greed, not me. Somebody else is always rich, not me, right? But here's the truth. In terms of the world we live in today, all of us in this room have more wealth than the vast majority of the rest of the world. I mean, we spend more on coffee than they spend on living expenses. We are rich. You want to talk about, in terms of all of history, we are the 1%. I mean, Solomon had a golden throne, golden decorations, a golden table with golden vessels laid upon it. He didn't have electricity or HVAC or the internet. 
I mean, if you're asking me, he can keep the gold. I'll take the internet. We are extraordinarily wealthy. And so Paul's words come to us, and they should hit us. The warning of Solomon's being in the grip of greed while being the godly king of Israel should frighten us. Greed is not a problem out there. It is a problem in here. And it's not easily killed. The way we must overcome greed is with contentment. It's with setting our hopes on Christ by seeking first the wise king who brings blessing to the nations. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Friends, where is your treasure? Seek the king. That's precisely what the queen of Sheba does. She seeks the wise king whom she's heard about. That takes us to the second layer of this Neapolitan sermon. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 10. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. So she hears that Solomon is famous, and not only is Solomon famous, his fame is reflecting positively the glory of God. The name of the Lord is coterminous with the fame of Solomon. Solomon represents God to the nations. The queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, and so she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. That word literally is heart, and there's sort of this fun uh, Hebrew interplay going on. Remember, Solomon asks for a listening heart. She hears of the king who has a hearing heart, and then she tells him all that's on her heart. This is kind of fun. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, so she hears of Solomon, with me, now she sees his wisdom. Well, how does she see his wisdom? The house that he had built, that's the temple, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She is awed at Solomon's wealth. She hears of it, she hears of his wisdom and of his glory, she comes to him, she sees it for herself, and now in verses 6 through 9, she confesses Solomon's greatness. She sounds a little bit like uh, Han Solo in the Star Wars movies, right? He says, it's true, all of it. Listen to what she says, verse 6. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men and your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. 
Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Queen sees the glory of Solomon, and so she confesses that the Lord is God and that he has been good to his people. Indeed, this whole sequence, I couldn't help but think of Thomas in John's gospel where seeing and believing are tied together. It happens climactically in Thomas's life towards the end of the gospel. Remember, Jesus shows up, resurrected, to the other disciples, talks with them, eats with them, leaves, and then Thomas shows up, and the other disciples are like, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead. He was here. And Thomas goes, I will not believe until I can see him for myself and trace his scars with my hands. And so Jesus, being gracious, gives an encore performance. He shows up, invites Thomas to run his hands along his scars. Though we're not told that Thomas actually does this. But what we do see is Thomas responding to Jesus. What he, he sees, John tells us, and he believes. And he confesses, my Lord and my God. Queen of Sheba has a similar experience here. She recognizes the wise king and confesses his greatness. She confesses who his God is. Friends, we, like the queen and like Thomas, are to seek the truly wise king. One whose heart is not divided between the glory of God and gold one whose heart was entirely pure. We are to seek King Jesus and his grace and his mercy. We are to believe in him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus was not greedy. He left heaven, eternity with God, to become a man, so that he might live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death in the place of all who will turn from their sin and trust in him. I mean, the condescension that happens in the incarnation if you want to think about what it was like for, for Jesus, for God the Son, to become a man, think about what it would be like for you to become a slug or a crab. Jesus was infinitely wealthy, and yet he left it all. He made himself poor, made himself obedient to the Father's will perfectly, to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at his name, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth would bow and every tongue would confess to the glory of God the Father that he, Jesus Christ, is Lord. Friends, when we come to this text and we see the wise King Solomon, we are to respond, we are to recognize in this pattern our need to come to the wise King Jesus as Thomas and believe. We should believe in the one that Solomon anticipated. To believe in King Jesus. 
If we do not, Jesus tells us, on the day of judgment, we will find the queen of Sheba wagging her finger at us in condemnation. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. See, Jesus is arguing, he's, he's saying, the queen of the south, just like the Ninevites, had less truth and less privilege than the people of God. The queen in particular only heard of Solomon's wisdom outside of his people, and yet she came to hear his words. She came to, to hear his words, and she believed his words, just like the Ninevites. Remember, the Ninevites hear the preaching of Jonah, and they repent. So likewise, we, we are called to follow these examples of the queen of Sheba and the people of Nineveh. People of Nineveh see the prophet that God rises up out of the belly of the fish and they listen to his word. The queen of Sheba hears of the wisdom and of the glory of the king that God has risen up to prominence and she hears and believes his word. And we who have heard of the good news of the king of heaven who came and was crucified for sins and laid in the belly of the earth for three days before being risen and raised up to sit his throne at the right hand of God, we ought to believe likewise. Non-Christian, you have far more privilege than the people of Nineveh or the Queen of Sheba. And you get to see the whole plan of God unfolded. That he would save to himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nations through his wise king. Oh, friend, repent. Believe in Jesus. Be baptized. Submit to his lordship. Be free from sin and death forever. Queen of Sheba teaches us to seek the wise king who brings blessing to the world. And that's our second layer, so let's come to the last layer of our Neapolitan cake and talk about God's providence how this picture of nations coming to the wise king shows up in the New Testament and how it points us to Jesus once more. 
Notice verse 10. Let me read it to you. Then she, the queen of Sheba, she's confessed Solomon's greatness and of the Lord's greatness. She gave the king, she's paying him homage, 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Haram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almig wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almig wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house also, lyres and harps for the singers. No such almig wood has come or been seen to this day. Also, consider verse 23 of chapter 10. We skipped it earlier in case you were going, hey, did he just skip those because they're really hard? No, here they are now. Verse 23, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments of myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, and so much year by year. Queen of Solomon, and indeed all the peoples of the world, the whole earth, anticipate all the Gentile nations coming and worshiping the Messiah King. Listen to Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then verse 9 of chapter 2, Matthew After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts gold and frankincense, which is a spice, and myrrh. You see the connection here. Nations are coming to worship the one greater than Solomon, the true Messiah King who brings peace on earth and goodwill to his people. Indeed, the legend around these three wise men, magi, grew up pretty early on after the, the scriptures were recorded for us, and there's no way to verify this, but, but you've probably heard the Christmas song, We Three Kings, right? The tradition that grows up around this is that these wise men, these magi, were actually kings representing the other nations to bow down before the king of kings. And the reason this tradition rose up is it's pretty easy to see when we uh, look through our Old Testament and see over and over again the prophecy of all nations coming and falling down before King Jesus. And our passage this morning is one such example. But also, uh, Solomon prophesies this, right? Psalm chapter 72, we read for our call to worship this morning. Just note particularly verses 10 and 11. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. 
May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Indeed, all of us are to come down to the king of kings and offer him our worship and our praise to pledge fealty to him. But there's one more verse that I want to share with you from 1 Kings 10 this morning. Look at verse 13. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given to her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. You notice, when you add up all the wealth of Solomon in this chapter, the gifts that the queen gives to Solomon in response to recognizing who he is, they're a drop in the ocean. Solomon doesn't need her gifts at all. Yet he receives them and then gives her far more than she could ever give him. Friends, is this not what Jesus Christ does for us? He gives us far more than we could ever give to him. He gave his life for us. He gives us his deep, deep love that's ever faithful, ever true. He gives us freedom from hell. He gives us peace with the Father. He gives us eternal life. Jesus gives us the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. He gives us the guarantee that there will be no more suffering, crying, or pain. There will be no more mourning. He gives to us the promise of life together forever with God and his people. God, Jesus has given to us life and life abundant. He has given to us great joy. He is the king of all nations. He has brought joy to the world that can be had by any who will turn from their sins and follow him. Because of his greatness, because he is the King of Kings. We obey His command, His commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that He has commanded us. We can do that because we know He has promised, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Church, God is with you. Jesus is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Give him your whole life. Live for him. Worship and witness to his glory among your friends, among your family, among your community, among all nations, because he is worthy of praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and all the lessons that are embedded therein from which we might learn. We, we thank you for Solomon who reminds us so much of ourselves. So often our hearts are impure and divided. We feel ourselves pulled towards the world and towards wealth and various idols, and, and yet because 
of your kindness, by your grace and your mercy, that you pull us back to yourself. You lead us to repentance in your kindness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be as your little children, fully dependent on Christ, not worried about tomorrow, keeping ourselves from idols. Lord, help us to receive every good and perfect gift comes from your hand to us. Let us not turn to the right hand or to the left, but walk faithfully that narrow way that leads into eternal life. Help us to follow King Jesus, who loved us, gave himself for us, and gives to us and all nations every spiritual blessing. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.